Hello and welcome back to another episode of Talking Terror brought to you by the Terrorism and Extremism Research Centre here at the University of East London. I'm John Morrison. Today's episode was recorded on April 12th at about 10am London time. As always, if you want to uh, tell us what you think about our podcast, only if it's good, of course, uh, tweet at us at that, with the hashtag TalkingTerror and tweet us uh, at the Twitter account at T-E-R-C-U-E-L. So, on with today's episode. It's my great pleasure and honour to welcome uh, Paul Taylor, a Professor of Psychology at Lancaster University and honor prof- Honorary Professor of Human Interaction at Twente University, um, onto today's pod. In October 2015, Paul became the inaugural director of the UK Centre for Research and Evidence in Security Threats, known uh, by many of you as CREST, which is funded by the UK Security and Intelligence Agencies. He's interested in how people cooperate. Using experimental, archival and field research, he has studied both the fundamental behavioural and cognitive processes that make human interaction possible, and more practically, the kinds of tactics and policies that promote peaceful solutions. Paul, welcome on today's episode. Well, thanks, and uh, thanks for bringing my code with me. No problem. No. How did you get, get involved in this area of research? Uh, it's, as, as many people have described, it's a bit of a long story. Mm. Um, I did my undergraduate at Essex University. It's a very experimental undergraduate, mm. and towards the end, while I appreciated uh, the methods that we were being taught, I really wanted to do something that had a bit of an application. And it was around that time that uh, David Cantor's book, Criminal Shadows, came out, oh, yeah. where he really took what you might consider applied archival data and gave it some rigour, and that really caught my interest, so I ended up doing uh, a Master's in Investigative Psychology at Liverpool. Okay. Zoom forward a year, and I'm looking around for dissertation topics, and the modus operandi of dis- dissertation topics in that field at the time was to take uh, a crime, murder, rape, or something like that, uh, and code uh, crime scene behaviours and examine the types of motives that might lead people to take that route. Really great work, mm-hmm. but I just wanted to do something different. And I remember sitting uh, uh, in a bar, I think it was Jacaranda on Harbin Street in Liverpool. And in the old days, you may remember, you used to get the postcards up at the side of the bar. Yeah. Uh, and one of the postcards just said, don't talk about communication problems. And it caught my eye. I thought, communication? I could code communication behaviours rather than actual actions at the crime scene and then what communication behaviors could do interviewing mm-hmm. but oh I could do hostage negotiation yeah. and so I wrote to um, Bill Donahue mm-hmm. uh, at uh, Michigan State and simply said I know you've done some work do you have any transcripts thinking nothing would come of it yeah. two weeks later I had an absolutely massive pack <laughs> in my pigeonhole yeah. um, of the original transcripts and a polite note saying please can you copy them and send them back because I need them back amazing Uh, and it all went from there really Um, I did a lot of work on hostage negotiation understanding the structure of communication so in other words how do people use language at different times to achieve different things Mm -hmm. to achieve different things and um, a few years after it uh, the series of really unfortunate kidnappings happened in Iraq and uh, Afghanistan. So you may remember Ken Bigley and Margaret yeah. San and so on. And so we were using the model to to advise and help hostage negotiators and get them to think about what they were doing. And traditionally, hostage negotiation actually is really suicide intervention. Mm-hmm. But clearly these events came along and it made sense to me that actually I need to start better understanding the terrorism literature, yeah. better understanding what people think about how people come to this 
point, mm -hmm. uh, how they think when they're at that point, what are their motives, what are their decisions, um, how can we assess risk and that type of thing. And so what was actually a very different route for me, which was kind of doing communication hostage negotiation, mm -hmm. suddenly became actually terrorist negotiations, that type of thing. That's right. And this actually, uh, that huge parcel from Donahue, uh, turned into a paper for the two of you as well. Like the, uh, am I right in saying the the testing the role uh, effects so, paper? So so his transcripts are my first paper. Yeah. So the original cylinder model in two thousand and two. Mm. That's those nine transcripts were the ones that he sent me. Okay. Um, uh, but we did do other work afterwards. Yeah. The I think the one you're talking about, the, the terrorist uh, interaction yeah. one, is taken from the Michaelis data set. Oh yes, yeah. of course. Um, I've not seen much of that in the literature recently, but the Michaelis data set was uh, catalogued by, obviously, someone called Michaelis. Um, I believe he was an ex-CIA officer, and he meticulously mm. kept books of every incident he could find on terrorism around the world. And I think there's four or five really chunky volumes of every incident. Mm. Uh, and, we, and as other researchers have done, Margaret Wilson's done some fantastic work on that data set. Um, we went into that data set, pulled out all of the negotiations we could find and coded what happened in those negotiations to try and understand um, the kind of push-pull factors between the negotiators and the terrorists and also how um, ideological background would impact on the types of behaviours that they did. And this is this is a paper that we're going to get onto yeah, later sure. on in, in, the, um, in the interview. But... I said at the, in the introduction that you're the director of CREST, the Centre for Research and Evidence in Security Threats. Could you explain to our listeners who don't know what CREST is, what exactly, uh, who exactly CREST is, and what is it, the, the work that you've been doing uh, as a, as a centre? Sure. So uh, I can give you a short or a long explanation. Um, uh, CREST's uh, primary goal is to bring together a network of international scholars mm -hmm. um, with a network of international practitioners and... Um, get that research over the barrier to those that can use it, but also get that practical knowledge back to researchers so they can refine their research questions and do, frankly, better research. Um, we really do that in three ways. Uh, the first is uh, original and synthetic research, um, that which we do through a set of core programmes, so ongoing programmes, and also through a commissioning process. Um, you note I said original and synthetic work, because in many areas of relevance to uh, security intelligence agencies, the work's actually out there, yeah. but it's not necessarily been translated into what they want uh, to their kind of field and their kind of questions. Um, so, for example, in memory and perception research, actually, there's real detail out there about how one can improve memory mm -hmm. of, say, uh, surveillance officers yeah. uh, and so on. And it just needs to be translated. So we've done a lot of synthetic work and, uh, and then original work to build on that. Yeah. So those are the, the, the core programs that we have. And those core programs range in terms of their topic from understanding actors and their ideologies mm -hmm. um, all the way through to protective security. Uh, and in some ways, actually, that, that's a circle because work on protective security includes work looking at the decisions people make in terms of the targets they choose, which then kind of feeds back into actors and ideologies. It's an interesting circle. Um, so we combine that with a more agile commissioning program. Uh, and if you don't mind, I'll encourage your listeners to look ahead uh, at our website because we do often commission work. And yeah. we, you know, we um, genuinely are happy to commission people from anywhere around the world, mm -hmm. from not just academic institutions, but think tanks and SMEs, as long as they obviously have a novel and interesting idea to tackle the questions. Mm -hmm. And the second thing we do a lot of 
uh, is uh, communications. So unlike many um, ESRC centres, uh, we put a quite a lot of our budget. It's around 18% into producing communication materials. Mm-hmm. And those you will see on the website, there's things like CSR that I know you've seen, mm-hmm. but also there are things like training materials, uh, short briefs, longer uh, toolkits and so on. Uh, I think that's really important because otherwise uh, academic papers are great for some people but not for everybody. It needs to be translated. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then thirdly, um, the third arm, if you like, is our efforts to build w- what we've called capability building, but it's really about bringing the community together. Mm-hmm. Um, lots of network events from what I call uh, few to one. Mm-hmm. So we have people come in with the expertise to talk to the four people who really want to hear from that person. Mm-hmm. That's actually been one of our most successful uh, routes. And I think the reason for that is uh, we often forget as academics that about 95% of what we know is never published. Yeah. And so we know it, <laughs> and we probably know it within our communities, mm-hmm. but we forget that the user community don't necessarily know that because they don't have the same opportunities to mingle in the ways that we mingle. And so... Um, those few to ones have been so successful. You know, it's almost if you imagine an hour of an interaction, ten minutes of it is discussing the the work that's been published, and it's like, right now, what do you think about this? Oh, actually, I did run that study, but it didn't work, so I never published it. Perfect. That type of thing, all the way through to big conferences. So in a couple of months, um, there's uh, the big uh, Bass conference uh, in July, which we're looking forward to. Um, and so that third layer of activity is really about bringing people together um, particularly cross-disciplinary or or trying to forge interdisciplinary communities uh, and trying to bring stakeholders together with uh, researchers brilliant Um, yeah Yeah, no and i think especially you you emphasize the synthetic research um and and this is hugely important and it's actually a theme that's been running across this podcast that Within the area of terrorism or security research, there's no need to be reinventing the wheel all the mm-hmm. time. There's often something in a in a discipline like I I see, for example, like Lorraine Hope's work, um, which has uh, been produced like reproduced in Cress, and she's been putting stuff forward for Cress. The work that she's been doing the years previously are huge. It has become hugely applicable, and mm-hmm. you've demonstrated how. Mm-hmm. So I think that's one of the most important things that Cress can do, and definitely the communication. Like we can write all these articles, but if no one reads them, what's the point? Like if it's not reaching that mm-hmm. practitioner community, it, it's uh, it doesn't it doesn't have the effect that we need. So moving on from Crest and going back to to yourself, and so you you were in that bar, you saw that postcard, and you thought, okay communication that might be uh that might be the avenue for me to take forward so what were the what was the academic literature that you were then delving into or even before that that was influencing you yeah so uh, i i think i'd describe that as a, as a two-step process mm. um there is a, a small community of researchers in the negotiation and terrorist negotiation field and i delved into a lot of that work mm. uh to to come up with the initial model alongside uh, communication research, so uh, a whole bunch of communication scholars, um, uh, Linda Putnam's work, that type of thing. And that, that forged the initial idea. But of course, the problem with um, the cylinder model as it originated was that it was actually a static model. What I did is I divided up the transcripts in a fairly arbitrary way mm-hmm. and then uh, examined each one. There was no sequence and temporalness to it. Now, I do remember, and it's my first. Uh, reading that I put that we've talked about, mm. uh, picking up Andrew Abbott, who's a sociologist at Chicago's book Time Matters, mm. and 
just getting completely engrossed in it. Um, and perhaps it's a reoccurring theme in some of my <laughs> selections, but uh, Andrew's book completely destroyed tears apart in a sense all of the linear modeling yeah. and experimental designs that I had been brought up with at Essex mm-hmm. and then at, at Liverpool uh, and really said look if you are I mean it says lots of things um, the chapter what do cases do I think it's chapter four is just fantastic mm-hmm. um, particularly for this field work actually where the case is really important and mm-hmm. in a sense you have that uh, I wouldn't say tension but synergy at the moment even in um, our field between those who do case-related research, really detailed, very interesting work, and those who work on aggregate data sets. Yeah. And we'll probably talk later about how, how those are coming together and how those are not coming together. Mm-hmm. So, um, uh, yeah, and so he, he, he made a very clear point, at least to me, which was if you're going to analyse something that occurs over time, you really ought to analyse it over time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so that uh, really influenced uh, a lot of my work for the next, well, at least a decade in terms of examining um, behaviour sequences. Mm-hmm. So within the negotiation work, we started examining what's called proximity. So we developed a, a new method, proximity analysis, mm-hmm. which allows you to really understand the structure of a whole set of behaviours, actions, mm-hmm. events, in terms of their co-location within a sequence. Mm-hmm. And so the idea is that by, by examining that, you can begin to find pockets of highly co-occurring mm-hmm. uh, events, and they kind of mean something together, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and indeed, thankfully, the, the models that we had for understanding the way different ways people communicate mm-hmm. were held, so all of the behaviours that you'd expect to be orientated towards, say, relational development or rapport development would occur together at one part of the interaction. Okay. Um, uh, and then um, along came uh, a good friend and colleague, Karen Jakes, and mm-hmm. said, well, well, perhaps we could apply some of that sequence stuff to uh, terrorists' uh, mobilisation. Mm-hmm. So at the time, there was lots of discussion of push factors and pull factors yeah. and uh, uh, the life course. But actually, again, most of the analysis, not all of it, most mm-hmm. of it was fairly static. It was what, yeah. what factors occurred in that life, what factors occurred in that life. Mm-hmm. And, of course, that's madness. Um, you know, in terms of mobilisation is, by definition, a process. Mm-hmm. So one really needs to analyse it like that. Yeah, and you can see this, then, in a piece that yourself and Karen and other colleagues put forward, uh, analysing forensic processes, taking time into account. And you focus specifically on female suicide bombers with as in one section of this. Yeah. this it's a great paper that, that deals with a lot of factors. But for the, for the purpose of this, um, the, the focus on female suicide bombers is... Um, uh, is what we're we're going to concentrate on. What was it that you you found in relation to to uh, to this case uh, to these cases of female suicide? Yes, <laughs> um, uh, Karen's thesis has a lot more of this stuff in mm. it. It's worth a read if those people are interested in it. Um, uh, it was really interesting. Karen came and said, I'm, "I want to compare males and females mm. and." As an experimental psychologist, I rolled my eyes because you <laughs> often yeah. have undergraduates come and say, oh, I, I want to compare males to females. You're like, is that really the most interesting independent variable we yeah. can think of here? Yeah. Uh, and she was very adamant. And I said, well, OK, go away, convince me, produce the case. And in fairness to Karen, in about 72 hours, she came back with four pages of a very eloquent case as to why she should study this topic. So, and that's what we did, and she collected uh, 496. I always uh, tease her that she didn't quite get to 500 <laughs> yeah. uh, biographies of males and females, mm-hmm. and um, 
coded their life events, mm -hmm. uh, but rather than simply do frequency analysis on what events occurred in the majority, mm -hmm. although we did do that, and that's one of our papers, she uh, ordered them in terms of a person's life, and then we applied some of those statistics we've just talked about on their lives mm -hmm. to really try and identify um, common patterns mm -hmm. and patterns that differentiated males and females. Mm -hmm. So you see lots of things in there. You'll see, for example, that females tend to be far more central to the sequence of females, tends to be personal motivations. Um, so, for example, uh, a brother dying or something like that. Mm -hmm. For males, the really a core key e event within those sequences tends to be groupness, group related to other people and so on. But you see other things. So there are certain actions, like the killing of a parent, which is almost like a fast track to go in yeah. terms of suicide. So in the sequence diagram, it skips all of the intermediate yeah. things and goes straight to someone becoming very active, um, either supporting or engaging in suicide bombing. Uh, and so what it allows you to do is begin to understand the risks that certain events, if you were to see them as an investigator, mm. pose potentially for evaluating that person. And one of the things I love about this is when you when you see it, like normally in process model in this area, the arrows interconnecting don't actually mean anything themselves. There's differentiation between the, the links between the arrows. Could you explain that for? for so, oh, so, well, here it's purely empirical. Mm -hmm. um, so if two things are connected by an arrow, it means that they one, one thing led to another mm -hmm. um, in at least one person's life story. Mm -hmm. And then um, all that we do is we look at the number of times that link occurs and the, the more times it occurs, the fatter the arrow mm -hmm. the, or the thicker the arrow. Mm -hmm. uh, and then, of course, you can run some fairly simple inferential tests on that to say, well, OK, it occurred 20 times out of our 500 biographies. Mm -hmm. Is that under-occurring more, more than we'd expect by chance? Is that over-occurring more than we'd expect mm -hmm. by chance? And... What you can then do is take what typically is quite a messy diagram mm -hmm. to begin with to try and distill its essence mm -hmm. in terms of what are the real key features that lead people through those pathways. Um, what, so you touched on it there uh, a bit uh, previously, but what should, say, practitioners take from the, the initial findings from, from this and how can that be applied then? Yeah, so... Oh, um, Karen identified in her thesis actually three or four mm. different routes that majority of people take, which almost falls into a typology, although I kind of avoid that yeah. terminology. Yeah. But uh, there's certainly four kind of routes through which would allow you to begin to think about, okay, do I need different investigative models for these different types of routes? Mm -hmm. What are the trigger points for those routes? Uh, in another piece of work, uh, Karen and I did... Um, a, an analysis of different recruitment strategies for different uh, male and females mm -hmm. uh, and found actually that you, you can have a quite a nice matrix where you have the different male reasons for getting involved in a sequence and females and then the different recruitment strategies you can find that some there's good targeting there's yeah. particularly recruitment strategies are used for particular types of situation that the person's in mm -hmm. um, so again it becomes a trigger point or something to look for for an investigator and, and so on mm -hmm. uh, I suppose the other way to use it um, 
is to begin tracking people through the diagram yeah. itself. You know, so where is this person relative to others? Is this person different from what we've seen before? Is this the person the same as what we've seen before? Yeah, and you can see what stage of the process they're at. Right. And, yeah. um, and one of the, I think one of the key, the key things that a lot of uh, the current research is showing is that a single motive explanation here is not sufficient. Right. You, it's, you can't just, just focus on that. And that there's no, um, that, that you have to be able to, to, to look at it stage by stage. Could you talk just a bit more about that? Um, that fast track that you see at the bottom there. You see uh, the link between going from marriage to death of a family member, often uh, a husband, and then and the fast track through. What, what do you feel that the, the explanation behind this was? That's a good question. And um, one of the weaknesses of the work that we did is we clearly couldn't get to the, um, the why yeah. question. Um, I think that, in fairness, is a theme... Um, it's a classic heuristic that many scientists have used is to stop asking the why question yeah. and ask the what question. Yeah. Um, yeah, even uh, They always say that Newton solved the, 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 his challenges in terms of about motion. Mm-hmm. People previous were asking the question, why does motion exist? Yeah. Newton just came along and described what motion was. <laughs> um, so so in, in a sense, it's very difficult from our work to describe why that... Uh, particular event um, had it the impact that it does, and we can make some reasonable hypotheses based on social psychology mm. or in some cases cognitive. Um, but we were always quite reluctant to do so, and, and one of the reasons I think, and one of the weaknesses of the approach, of course, is it's aggregated. Mm-hmm. So that one action, that killing of somebody, may mean very different things to very different people. It seems to fast track them, regardless of what it meant, but actually to try and interpret or give it meaning, I think, requires a much more case level analysis, yeah. um, where you can begin to start teasing out what it meant for that person within that their own individual trajectory. Yeah. Yeah. No. Yeah. It's oh, it's a fair point, and it's yeah. Those why questions aren't always the most useful questions to be asking when you're looking at it from a from a countering uh, point of view. Let's go back actually mm. to the to the pieces that influence you. You obviously um, you indicated the influence of David Cantor's work and the huge influence that he's had and in investigative psychology, forensic psychology. Um, and you picked a piece that he did with Heritage, a multivariate model of sexual offence behaviour developments and offender profiling. Now, there, there are a lot of David Cantor pieces you could have picked, I'm yeah. sure, but why was it this one? Uh, um, this, to me, was the first of the SSA papers. So SSA is smaller space analysis, <laughs> this notion of being able to understand co-occurrences among a set of behaviours and pull out. Uh, larger thematic uh, interpretations of that. Um, in many ways, it's a strange one to suggest because, of course, later on uh, um, in my own work, we showed that using that technique, uh, the patterns that you find is in part, if not large part, down to a methodological artefact in terms of the coefficients that are used. So, but I think it, I think it's important to flag up that that was an influence at the time, and that's why I put it on there. Um, it wasn't the first paper ever to use that approach, no. the MDS approach, but it was the one that uh, popularised it with many of us mm-hmm. in terms of showing how you could take what is quite qualitative theoretical under- theories about um, why people might rape others mm-hmm. uh, and begin to show that actually there's a mapping between the actions mm-hmm. and those characteristics. 
uh, and that different individuals uh, would have different motives or different characteristics, different motives, but you could see that at the aggregate level. So I think I, I, I picked it because I think it was an important influence in terms of how I approached the method. So mm-hmm. the, I use exactly the same method for all of the comms behaviour work that we did on negotiation. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it was also the gateway into uh, Louis Gutman's work, which was also hugely influential on me, but you restricted me to three articles. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, how did you find actually picking the three articles? I, it is, I, I torture all my, all my guests mm. by saying, pick those three. No, I tried to pick ones that, um, in, in a sense, influenced me to, uh, in the what work I did mm. rather than the core to the work that I do do. Yeah. So Andrew Abbott's that we've already talked about, um, I don't do sociology professions no. and we'll never do sociology professions, but um, I, I find, in fact, I still find great value in reading literature from other areas and going, ah, I could apply that yeah. to my work. Um, so I, And I find that in some ways more influential in terms of the questions and the approaches I take uh, than you have to backstop it. Yeah, by by your own literature. Yeah, um, so the final piece then that you have, it's uh, King's piece, a solution of the ec- ecological inference problem. What is the ecological okay, inference yeah. problem? Okay, yeah, so this was the hardest one to pick. I wanted to pick a paper on the ecological mm. inference or ecological validity problem. Uh, and King's book, in fairness, is so seminal, it's a, it's a good way in. Yeah. Um, so the, the problem is very simple, and it occur, I think it's one that we really still need to tackle. It's a very old problem, and it's been um, around social sciences for at least 75 years. And it's the problem of how do we take aggregate data uh, and make a prediction about the individual? Um, I suppose it's come to the fore a little bit more now with all of the big machine learning and, yeah. and uh, artificial intelligence work. We've got very, very big data sets. Um, um, and often that data, those data sets are used at the aggregate level. So if I just make a analysis at the aggregate level, as long as I pick up 1% of people more than I would have done anyway, then it's a success story. <laughs> but actually, for a lot of our problems in um, kind of the law enforcement world, you're working at the individual level. Yeah. So you know, people investigate individuals. They don't investigate aggregate data sets. Mm-hmm. And so this, notion, this challenge of going from the aggregate to the individual and what inferences you can really make about the individual from the aggregate is an enduring one. And it's an enduring one in all areas. Let me just take a very simple example uh, from a different area to mm-hmm. illustrate it, which is the area of deception detection. Okay. So most deception detection work... Um, compares a truth-telling group to a lie group and then it looks at the means and it uses a method called analysis of variance typically to show that those means and those variances are sufficiently different that the technique managed to differentiate liars from truth-tellers. Now, that's great and that's how um, lots of experimental work goes on but now say to those to that researcher, so what is the value that I need to see to, in order to know whether that person, John, is lying or telling the truth? Yeah. I can't tell you that because I, I just know that that technique helps you do yeah. it. But what's the? It's a different question, yeah. So you're going from the aggregate to the individual, and it's a real challenge in lots of areas. Um, and, and and I picked it as well, I think, because I, in, in a sense, I think it demonstrates the plurality of our own field. And as I, we've already discussed, you've got that lovely case study work on one side, and you've got yeah. this aggregate big data work on the other yeah. side. 
and, and they kind of mesh slightly, yeah. but but it's very difficult from hot to warm to the other and back Completely. again. So it's a really big challenge. Uh, I don't think it'll ever be solved, no. um, but I do think we perhaps need to maybe acknowledge it more, but also try and seek ways to to deal with it. Yeah, and King puts forward um, he puts forward a seven part not solution. He he, he used the word solution up, but it, it's not a full solution right. there. But puts forward seven seven thing seven ways to approach it to, in order to to um, to deal with the ecological inference problem. Do you apply those seven steps yourself, <laughs> or do you like? Are there is there any one that stands out that's been most useful? For you? So, um, uh, in a word, probably no. Okay. Um, he, I mean, he was dealing with a very specific problem, which mm. was trying to understand individual voter behaviour. Yeah. Um, uh, I, I think it's very useful. Uh, his seven are really useful to try and think about how you might translate them into our own problems. Mm. Um, and I think our field does do some of them, perhaps not um, with explicit awareness. Mm-hmm. So one way of dealing with it is his course to do within subjects work. So actually, if you compare someone to their self, then you're rapidly diminishing the aggregation that you're requiring. Mm-hmm. Um, another thing to do is to slice your population into smaller pots. And that's one of their, their techniques, is to focus on local areas. Uh, and you see a lot of that work, so people thinking about um, different roles that people play in terrorist groups, mm-hmm. uh, different continents that they're from, um, uh, different uh, attack plans and so on. So you see a lot of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and different groups, of course. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's the sort of application that you can begin to think about. Mm. Uh, and what you then start to delve into is some very clever um, multi-level models mm-hmm. that allow you to make inferences from the individual upwards mm-hmm. and back down again. Um, some of the best work, and I, I almost chose it over the King's uh, paper currently is in cultural anthropology where they are demonstrating individual pockets of cultures at the community level Mm -hmm. aggregate up into this kind of culture at the the country level and so you begin to understand the relationship between the two and whose work would that be oh i need my laptop open for that no Uh, worries somewhere in the uh, archive no worries (laughs) no worries well it it sounds fascinating i I know when you're trying to to find something on one on one theme it's sometimes hard to to pick one over the other but that king piece it's definitely worthwhile it's definitely useful to look at so let's move on and concentrate the rest of the podcast on your own research and the research you've done with colleagues so we go back to the to the very beginning. We we mentioned already that uh, that uh, piece you did with William Donahue, mm-hmm. and you were testing the role effect in terrorist negotiations. What was what was the aim for yourself and Donahue in, in this in this pa- in this paper, and um, and what exactly was the role effect that you were looking at? Yeah. So Bill and I um, had an idea at the time of a very simple hypothesis, which we called the one down phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Uh, and all, all that hypothesis is, is that, that when someone's in the corner, when the cat's in the corner, mm-hmm. if you prod it, it'll eventually attack you. Yeah. In other words, when you're in the one down power position, mm-hmm. it's okay for a time. But when you're so far down that you have very limited options, then the option you take is typically aggressive. Mm-hmm. Um, and just prior to that piece, we did uh, a survey of literature in seven areas. Um, so from buyer-seller negotiations through to divorce mediations, Uh, through to international negotiations where you see a lot of one-down effects, actually, because of the big power differences between countries. 
um, and demonstrated it, it, that it was occurring, or at least we thought there was evidence that it was uh, consistent with the, the idea. And so that's what we wanted to test in this mm. paper. Uh, we wanted to, sh- to see really whether um, you got more aggression from a terrorist group when you started to prod it too hard. And you looked at, at it in a number of different ways, um, and you looked at a number of different variables. And one of the, the aspects that you looked at was the role that ideology played. Mm-hmm. What were your core findings in relation to ideology? <laughs> you have to open the paper for that. Uh, so, uh, I mean, one of the nice things about this paper is that we managed to develop six small scales. So rather than just Kodak behaviours as occurring or not mm. occurring, we coded them um, you know, on, a, on a score that ranged, that had a really nice range. Um, and so we were really interested in uh, how the three ideological groups that we found within our data set, and that's, so that's nationalist, separatist, uh, social revolutionary and religious fundamentalist, mm. differed in terms of the way that they would approach the interaction. Mm. So, uh, for example, you saw much more uh, negotiation or affiliation behaviours, so more interactive, let's resolve this scenario situation mm-hmm. with nationalist separatists. Yeah. Um, they obviously have a particular goal that they want to achieve, and that maybe leads itself more to um, a negotiation, mm-hmm. a traditional bargaining-style yeah. design. By contrast, the religious fundamentalists, much more power mm-hmm. actions, power behaviours, so really trying to assert something. And, and so the, bar- the traditional bargaining model wouldn't work as well there. Yeah. And so what you're finding is that different ideologies come to the table with different uh, aspirations, different expectations, and indeed different behavioural repertoires. And so in a very simple way, this um, analysis was just trying to pull out some of those differences. Mm-hmm. And so what... Like, were there any findings that, that surprised yourself and Bill in relation to this that was going against what, what you were expecting? Oh, I didn't. Um, I didn't think... Well, I didn't... So, the two. Mm-hmm. Firstly, we didn't think we'd be able to get away with coding it as cleanly as okay. we did, actually. Um, uh, I mean, if you look at the scales, it's really interesting. You can get that level of granularity from what were eff- effectively Mikos's short descriptions. Yeah. And we did so fairly reliably. Um, it, you know, it's so difficult to look in retrospect, but I suppose at the time, the other thing that really shocked me is how different religious fundamentalist behaviour was mm-hmm. to the other two groups. Yeah. Um, I don't think I'd think that now, no. <laughs> over a decade on. Yeah. Uh, but at the time, it was really quite profound and quite interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if nothing else made us think, OK, when we study these in the future, we need to think about doing it separately or yeah. at least yeah you know thinking about different things that are going on and was there any approach uh, in the negotiations that was more likely was significantly more likely to lead to some form of success now definition of success obviously is is another discussion but what was there was there any approach yeah so again it would depend on the group yeah uh so uh negotiations and, re- and release so cooperative behavior mm. tends to breed cooperative behavior we know that mm-hmm. um but it would really depend on the group. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I mean, one of the challenges with this work was it was, all, again, all behavioural. Mm-hmm. And so you're looking at individual tactics as they occur. Now now we've done much more detailed analyses. You can begin to understand the kind of communication dynamics that underlie those tactics. Yeah. Uh, and so what we often find, um, the key predictor, mm-hmm. is synchrony in terms of the frame of which people are talking about things. Yeah. 
<clears throat> so Nasha Septis, uh, 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 well, um, let, let's talk more broadly. So they all, for example, may have an instrumental demand. Mm -hmm. They might want something. It's not usually the case with the religious fundamentalists we examined. Mm -hmm. They all have uh, maybe an identity frame. That is, they um, believe that they, are, uh, they have a particular identity and they perceive you as having a particular identity. And they have a relational frame. In other words, they have a relationship with you, an affiliation or non-affiliation with you. Mm -hmm. And that needs to be managed as well. <clears throat> and what we, what you quite clearly show uh, across a whole range of studies is the authorities really need to adopt the same frame as the other person if they're to move forward. I'll give you, a, uh, if you don't mind, an example no. from another area, of res uh, another area which is kind of the, the classic example. In, in the old days, we used to train negotiators to offer food at the beginning of a, a negotiation mm -hmm. um it's, it's a great thing to do for a whole bunch of reasons um you know when you're tired and stressed mm -hmm. as hostage takers typically are yeah. food can help a lot um but some every now and again you'd get a, a new recruit who would just gone through the training and, and they'd come up and they'd say right um john uh, uh my name is paul i'm here to uh, hear you've got a bit of a problem and i'm here to talk to you about that um, but first thing is, John, uh, let me get you some pizza. Yeah, I'm sure you'd want some pizza. You, you reply by going, oh, my God, you've got the SWAT team pointing guns at me. I'm about to get my head blown off. And, John, John, don't worry about it. Let me, let's just order the pizza. It takes a long time to come in central London. It's a bit of a problem. It's just, oh, you're going to blow my... Uh, swear word, swear word, head off. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, uh, of course, I'm talking... What, what toppings do you like? Do you like pineapple? Do you like? I'm talking really instrumentally about what, what pizza to give you. You're yeah. really worried about your identity because you're worried about what the authorities may or may not do to you. Yeah. And, of course, the, the interaction doesn't progress. Mm. Uh, and so what, you know, what we now know is that what you have to do is... Okay, I'm going to talk to you about you and your safety mm. uh, for enough amount of time that that de-escalates that issue for mm. you before then moving on to another issue that, yeah. that is of interest to me. Mm -hmm. Same goes here. So you see <clears throat> different frames or different ways of interacting, um, and it's important to engage with that, at least initially, mm -hmm. so that you're in sync. Very good. No, it's it's a really fascinating paper, and it's um, it's one I, I actually hadn't read before uh, before preparing for this, and it's always nice to, to be introduced to some new pieces uh, when doing doing the analysis, uh, doing the research behind this. Um, you also talked about, so you, you compared across ideologies, obviously, but you talked about the differences between hijackers and barricade sieges mm. as well. What did you, what, what were your findings in relation to that? Yeah, so that's... Um that, a lot of work in the kind of negotiation sphere, so Margaret Wilson's work and mm. others, found there were quite substantial differences between the different types of interactions that you have. Um, and, and the reason for that really was well, several fold, I suppose. Sometimes it's the criticality of the timing. Mm -hmm. And secondly, it's the reason that people get into those scenarios. So barricade situations tend to be much more drawn out. Mm -hmm. Um, which allow them to unfold with more what I would call bargaining behaviours, yeah. so controlling behaviours, then cooperative behaviours, and controlling as you kind of back and forth until you finally reach a point where, okay, uh, let's resolve this thing. Yeah. Uh, hijacking can be you know, much more threats, much more acute, mm -hmm. uh, and those are the sorts of differences that you find. You probably mm -hmm. remember it much more better than I <laughs> do. <so. laughs> and actually, if... One of the things that stood out, actually, and I'm sure anyone who reads it, um, when you come towards the end, one of the findings that you put forward, broadly and generally, is that excessive demands often led to better outcomes as well. Um, 
what like but they, by the well, by the terrorist group you mean? by the terrorist group because yeah, yeah and, and that's because of course if they're making lots of demands mm. they're not engaging in more violent yeah. more uh, action orientated mm. activity and um, when you look at this you can you're obviously looking at it from the negotiation point of view but there are loads of different um loads of different ways that we can analyze this and one of the ways we can analyze this is through game theory mm-hmm. um mm. what way could we apply game theory to getting a, getting a greater understanding of this um yeah what? so uh, um game theory offers a great lens into it uh, always has offered a great lens into the negotiation yeah. world and um, Schelling's book uh, is a particularly great example uh, of, of influence. Game theory, game theory is interesting because, of course, game theory then developed and realised it too had to deal with sequences. Yeah. And so you'd have a series of game theory actions. Um, so its lens on it is to really clarify, really simplify, uh, and allow us to see individual decisions where it stops short for me is it's still too uh, unidimensional. Okay. Uh, so something like that, what you'd end up with game theoretically, if you were to try and put that data into a game theory model, would be a very multidimensional yeah. model with lots of decisions being made. Uh, and in, in, a, in a sense... Game theory works better almost at the larger scale, the more macro scale, the international scale, where so obviously it's been used on arms races and that type of thing, mm-hmm. more than it does when you start looking at the communication dynamics of something that unfolds over time, because mm-hmm. there's a lot more complexity at that micro level. Yeah, yeah, no, it's 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 definitely a, a paper that I'd recommend, as all of these papers are, I'd recommend all of our listeners to read. Um, but let's move on to the next one because. One of the things that I love when you've got, uh, in any field of research, um, and there's a lot of it going on in psychology at the moment, is there, there are these assumptions, myths really, about what, it, what a certain uh, actor looks like, what a certain uh, activity uh, looks like and what's influencing it. But sometimes we often need to challenge these assumptions. Mm-hmm. And... You did this in the in the next paper, again with Karen, uh, when looking at female perpetrated terrorism. You looked at the myths and realities in relation to, to female perpetrated terrorism. And across eight different factors you were mainly concentrating on. What was it that influenced yourself and Karen to do this? Um, and what was it, what approach did you take mm. to, to addressing this? So, so we clearly weren't the first to start challenging those myths. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in fact, at the time of writing it, I think those myths have been fairly challenged mm-hmm. um, uh, in the male literature. Mm-hmm. Uh, we thought we really ought, given the size of our data set, to set it out in the female literature. Yeah. And, and so that's what that paper does. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, uh, in, in many senses, a descriptive paper where we take our eight variables, our eight core variables, we relate them to myths that, although interesting in the terrorism community, were clearly understood to be myths. Mm-hmm. In the forensic psychology community, in some of the broader psychology community, I'm not sure that message had completely got through. Mm-hmm. So we took those eight um, myths, so about age, about education, about criminal, uh, criminality, prior criminality, mm-hmm. Uh, about conversion, uh, and looked at the, propen- the the amount they occurred in each of the um, areas. Mm. Um, <coughs> it's interesting, actually. So I, in my head, this 
paper connects with one of our others, and mm-hmm. which is the review, the theoretical review of the female literature as well. Mm-hmm. And they kind of go hand in hand, yeah. if you like, the data to the theory, the theory to the data. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the theory paper is really interesting because actually there's a lot of data in that paper in the sense that what we did is we examined... Um, we coded, if you like, all of the literature. Mm-hmm. And so one of the findings, for example, is that Gutman scale of roles. Mm-hmm. So the notion um, that actually if you look across all of the different groups and their use of females, you see a hierarchy. So if you have become a leader, mm-hmm. it is almost certain that that group also allows people to be facilitators, yeah. to be bystanders and so on. Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot of structural organisation to the use of females. Mm-hmm. Um, and then this paper kind of gives the data to show actually the use of females is in accordance with whatever is needed by that group. There is no type, there is no profile. And, and what groups were you looking at? You were looking at a broad range of groups here. Yeah. So what way did... Let's go back to, to how Karen got that literature, how yourself and Karen got mm. that literature. Where was where was this being drawn from? Where were these biographies being drawn from? Yeah, so they were, they um, came from the open source. Mm-hmm. Uh, they came from um, everything from diaries to newspaper reports uh, to interview transcripts. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we ran a triangulation um, protocol. So we'd always make sure we had at least two data sources for each person. Mm-hmm. And it's really surprising, or perhaps not to yourself, but is you know there's a lot of stuff out there. Yeah. Uh, it took over a year to get. Mm-hmm. Um, but y- y- when you start triangulating what someone's own account of their life was mm-hmm. with what actually is described in the newspapers of what happened to them, perhaps also with a TV interview mm-hmm. with their family member who has a third perspective on it, mm-hmm. you begin to get quite a rich picture of some people's lives. Oh, definitely. And actually a year to gather that amount of data, I, it isn't that, that long to take. It's, mm-hmm. it's relatively quick, all right. And that's that, in fairness, that's Karen's doing, not mine. So <laughs> let's just be clear. <laughs> the praise should be there. Very good. What, would, what would you feel the the core take-home message from this in relation to um, to the, the myths and realities of female perpetrated terrorism? Yeah, uh, well, uh, uh, as I suspect everyone might have thought that it's very same as the take-home message for males mm-hmm. um, and that there isn't uh, a, a particular profile for individuals, there isn't a particular educational background. And interestingly, and um, this isn't so uh, concretely understood in literature, we didn't find much linkage with criminality. Yeah. Um, which was interesting. Maybe that's a specific thing for females. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the take-home message. Uh, I think more broadly from that whole set of work we've been describing, the take-home message is how rich you can get with the yeah. data. Yeah. Um, I always have a residual concern. I, I really want someone to do my own diary okay. and then ask me about it to see how accurate yeah. <laughs> this type of coding work is. I have a residual concern that it could be actually went in in reality slightly glossing over some of the intricacies of people's lives yeah no, but um yeah it would be a good a good challenge to set someone all right if only i wrote it I <laughs> <laughs> maybe that can be in the next crest call as well. <laughs> yeah. but what, also what you found is that that females were and it, this wouldn't be as dominant as as the criminal criminal activity finding females were also less likely to be converts than the than the male the male perpetrators as well which was something that that would stand out to 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 many uh, at the moment as well and was there was there anything 
in the in the theoretical literature that would that would suggest this at all, or was this? Uh, yeah, the convert one was a little bit diff- difficult. I think of all of the variables we looked at because of the low frequency of which it was being reported. Yeah. Uh, so I'm always just slightly reluctant to kind of draw big theoretical findings from what is a very small n. Yeah. Um, uh, it's an interesting one. Uh, I think as well with a lot of the literature that has taken on this kind of coding-based approach, mm-hmm. um, as people readily acknowledge, of course, is it really depends on what people focus on in their reporting of individuals. Mm-hmm. And I can imagine that actually female conversion is not something that people would necessarily pick up as much as for males. Yeah. yeah. Uh, for a whole bunch of reasons. That, yeah. You're so reliant on who's who's writing it up, I yeah, suppose. Yeah. It's um yeah, it's 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 a really neat paper. You go through those those eight the, the eight being age, educational achievement, employment, immigration, marital status, religious conversion, criminal activity, and activist connections, and really neatly go through them all. Um, and it's it's something that that's yeah, while you say it might be it might be known, it might be supposed by a lot of people in the terrorism studies literature, we need we often need the evidence to back this mm-hmm. up as well, which is mm-hmm. exactly what this supplies. So you wanted to focus on communication. The, you have seen it in relation to uh, a number of the pieces, especially in relation to the hostage negotiation piece, but you see it most dominantly here in the final piece um, that you did with Cheryl Prentice and others, which is analy- analysing the semantic content and persuasive composition of extremist uh, media, a case study of text produced during the Gaza conflict. What was the what was the origins of this piece? What, what, what were sure. You so this was a set of work. Um, we were approached and asked to try and better understand, or help the authorities better mm. understand, um, the types of messages that were sticking with people who were eventually ending up doing violence within the UK. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we thought. Well, what, what better thing to do than analyse the messages that they seem to be consuming? Because obviously, the people who are writing those messages have some idea of the sorts of levers to pull because yeah. they're being at least moderately effective in some scenarios. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's what we did. We went away and we got a whole set of English speaking literature because, mm-hmm. on the whole, in the UK, it tends to be consumed in English. Mm-hmm. Um, or at least at the time that was the case, uh, and examined it using some of the communication models that we talked about right at the beginning yeah. of this, this session. Um, and so I picked this piece because it begins to show the blending between more qualitative theoretical work and more quantitative, you know, Not I wouldn't. it's not machine learning by any margin, but actually more analytical, automated work, mm-hmm. and how the two can complement one another. And you get both of those in that paper. Mm-hmm. So you get uh, an automated analysis of semantics using something called W matrix, which is a, a method of pulling out key concepts and the way they're used in the literature. So you'd find things, for example, I, um, one of the classic findings from our work there is that if you looked at the way America and the UK were de- being described in some of this extremist material, they were very, very different. Mm-hmm. And at the time, we'd assumed that we, would all be, we were all being clumped together as being the West, yeah, and actually that's not it wasn't the case at all, and there was a much more finer differentiation between how the two were being described. Okay, um, 
Uh, and then on the more qualitative side, we coded it for uh, nine types of influence. Mm-hmm. A lot of my work's on influence strategies. Mm-hmm. So they might be instrumental strategies such as um, persuasion. So if you do this, um, you'll have your 71 virgins in, in heaven yep. or however many it was <laughs> in the... Uh, um, the uh, uh, more relational strategies such as... Um, social proof so look uh, the west treats us like dogs we really need to fight back or or um, moral proof so um sorry social proof would be uh look at what our brothers in afghanistan are doing mm-hmm. we should do the same back in here uh, uh moral proof being we're being treated like dogs yeah. and so uh and then thirdly uh more identity focused things so good jihad would do this type okay. of thing yeah. so really appealing to the individual's identity mm-hmm. So you see those those three types of messaging. And the key take-home finding from that paper was that over 50% of the messaging, so sorry, just to describe how we do it, we take a message and we, we kind of divide it up at the utterance level and then we code each utterance. So a particular piece of material might be 70% relational, 20% instrumental, 10% identity, something like that. You do that across a larger set and you begin to get patterns percolate to the top. Um, uh over 50% of the messaging that was being done by those who were trying to promote violence within the UK at the time was relational. Okay. So it was the moral proof that mm-hmm. we talked about, the social proof, and the upward appeals. So look at uh, Al-Zakawi, um, what's he doing, you know, that type of, or, or a religious appeal or um, a appeal to another authority figure, that mm-hmm. type of thing. So those three things, really relational. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was interesting because, of course, in another work, we did a comparison with uh, what UK government was doing. Yeah. Um, and it's not a criticism, but UK government's approach is fairly instrumental. It was like, this is a war. These, you know, uh, This is not the way to go about doing this thing. These are the pros, these are the cons, and this is what we should do. Mm-hmm. Of course, there's that disconnect. And uh, we talked about that getting in yeah. sync. Uh, and that's really quite an interesting thing yeah. to look at. Um, the other thing that uh, really stands out to me with that paper, actually, was when you started to look across groups. So you'd see that different groups had different communication profiles and other preferences, as I guess we've talked about before, mm. in terms of how they like to talk. Yeah. talk. Um, I always remember uh, one of our uh, the cases, one of the actors in, in here is um, Zawahiri. Mm-hmm. And he has a really flat profile, which, which means actually his preference for which tactic to use was varying depending on which message you analyse. Okay. So he's actually quite an adaptive communicator, targeting obviously different audiences at different times using different strategies, yeah. which I think we probably know mm-hmm. if we thought about him and the types of messages he sends out. Yeah. Uh, but it was really nice to see that in the data. And so not only can you group... Uh, so you could take someone who didn't know what group they belonged to and say actually their communication pattern fitted... Group X, yeah. or Group Y, so everything from IRA through to Akira. Um, you also saw this great variance in terms of some people who are really quite adaptive communicators and some are really stuck in their ways. Yeah. And that, as a psychologist, is quite an interesting thing for me to think about um, flexibility in comm styles. Yeah. No, it's really interesting. And it actually it, it goes back to uh, the importance of timing as well with with regards to like going back to that that Abbott piece uh, time matters what role did you see timing and uh, like we've talked about authorship there a bit but what what role did timing play yeah, yeah. so in this this paper was actually uh, uh, the, pi- the the results of a pilot analysis mm. on a smaller data set mm-hmm. that we then collected a much bigger data set on 
Um, and in the biggest states, you see much more impact of time. Mm. Um, although, of course, here it's pre and post uh, Gaza yeah. conflict. So, um, what you, I guess what I would take away from the larger analysis is how uh, message content unfolds. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, we see it, and uh, other people have done some wonderful work on this, kind of tracing the roots of where particular narratives and particular ideologies have come from mm-hmm. and how they've unfolded into, particular, uh, into what you see today. Yeah. <coughs> Another thing which I don't think has got much as much airtime as it should have is um, we did this work with Andrew Hoskins and Ben O'Glochlin, Um and they did a lot of work on gatekeepers. So they identified quite quickly that actually the literature that was being consumed was often being translated, mm-hmm. and it was being translated by a very select few people okay. who they called gatekeepers. Mm-hmm. And so actually what you were finding is quite, uh, quite a lot of homogeneity in the messages that were being put out mm-hmm. because these gatekeepers clearly want, they have a particular view and a particular yeah. thing that they want to achieve mm. and they were massaging the messages in such a way as to well firstly I, I guess selecting the messages but also massaging their uh, translation of them to achieve particular things yeah. and so that's interesting from I guess a temporal perspective because the gatekeeper has undue influence on the stream of material that occurs across time. Yeah, this is definitely something that doesn't get doesn't get get focused on enough and it's uh, yeah it, we can't just concentrate on what the content is we have to like if it's a translation what was the translation what's the process yeah. behind it yeah, yeah. absolutely yeah. It, I, I see it fitting really well with the work of Donald Holbrook and others mm-hmm. when looking at um, at the Al-Qaeda communications and for anyone who's interested in Donald's work uh, on on uh, on the the statements of al-qaeda go back to uh, his his episode uh, absolutely uh, yeah absolutely uh, no it's it's great and it's by by showing that you can do this this automated analysis alongside this more manual analysis as well and showing that how they can work together i think this will really uh, we can often take the the findings as being the the take home message from from uh, from pieces but i think one of the things that all of your pieces bring together is is the methodologies that can be used as well that not always the methodologies that are used within terrorism studies that we can uh, use Different methodologies and different approaches that that are being used elsewhere and apply them apply them to our area of interest, but with with all this and these are your previous works. What's uh, what does the future hold? Where are you? Where's your research taking you now? Um, <laughs> Other than lead, uh, directing crest, yeah. I mean, when, <laughs> do when you have I time for to, your own yeah. research? <laughs> well. So um, I, to, just to go back to your mm. point about methods, mm. and it's interesting actually. Um, it is sometimes the case, I think, that we allow our existing methods to dictate what research questions we want to ask. Mm-hmm. And I've always been a fan of making sure I ask the question I want to ask and finding and spending sometimes months to find a way to answer that yeah. question. Um, of course, there's always a trade-off, and that's mm-hmm. I don't mean to come across as you know a bit thinking it was black and white. But I do think sometimes it's important to say, OK, this is the question I'm going to ask. This is rather this is a question that needs answering. I need to find a way to answer that question, not mm-hmm. simply just do what others have done before yeah. me. Um, where am I going at the moment? Uh, well, a lot of our work uh, is still examining human interaction, mm-hmm. um, looking at um, influence and rapport uh, in a whole range of contexts, so mm-hmm. the vetting uh, context through to negotiations, still through to interviewing. 
Um, and we, again, blend a lot of technology with manual coding. Mm -hmm. So at a very theoretical level, we're interested in how nonverbal and verbal behavior interlink mm -hmm. uh, and how, um, which has primacy over the other, very old questions which never really have been fully answered, yeah. I think. Uh, and um, more practically, what that would mean for people trying to get cooperation in a whole range of scenarios, be that in military conflict zones all the way through to uh, police interviews okay. in, in the UK. Yeah. Um, and so that, that involves technology because we use things such as XN suits, which allow, which is the sort of thing you see in Hollywood where they draw the car the character like Ted. Okay. Ted the bear. Or was, the actor acts it out with an XN suit and then they put on the bear. Yeah. What, that, we, what it means for us is that we can track people in real time in terms of how they're acting. Really and cool. we can measure things like mimicry and mm -hmm. those types of behaviours. Wow, and who are you doing this with? Who, who's this research with? Uh, largely with PhD students, okay. um, but we also do it with um, Sophie van der Zee, mm -hmm. um, and then with Ellen Hebels, my long-time collaborator. We do a lot of work on cross-cultural interactions, mm -hmm. and um, I have to say one of the areas I've been, I think, I think it's probably well-known, been encouraging researchers to look at is cross-cultural differences. Mm -hmm. Uh, a lot of our work, particularly in the kind of investigative space in terms of the tools that people use, so interviewing or that type of thing, has been done on US and UK undergraduate students. Yeah. And the real concern is that actually they don't work in other fields. Yeah. Um, so we just published a paper recently that showed that uh, lying indicators, language indicators of lying in some cultures are actually indicators of truths in others. Okay. So to give you an example... Um, uh, we have a distinction that many people will be familiar with between individualism and collectivist mm. uh, communities. Um, so the literature is largely based on UK and US. Undergraduates tend to be from an individualist background. And so when they lie, they tend to drop their use of first-person pronouns. Okay. Very well-established fact. Um, you know, 70 papers, something yeah. like that, really showing that fact. But that's... And, and the rationale, or rather the explanation for that, is that people are distancing themselves from the lie. Mm -hmm. That's not true. going to be true in collectivist cultures necessarily because they might want to distance their social group from the lie. Okay. And actually that's what we observe. So we actually see they increase their use of first-person pronoun mm -hmm. and decrease their references to the plural, to the social group, and in particular decrease their references to family and friends. So you have that dynamic. Yeah, and th this is, like, you can see applications of, of this everywhere in, in this field, especially if, if you're in, in think of interrogations, etc. Yeah, like yeah. it's, it's, it's It sounds fascinating. It sounds, like, really worthwhile research. Well, and, so the other, and then the other area is behavioral analytics more broadly, mm. so extending some of the work that you've seen. And, and I actually see them as the same piece of work, in yeah. a way, because the way in which we model human behavior is with fairly analytical techniques. Mm. And so it's really about trying to find new ways into old problems. Yeah. Brilliant, brilliant. So you've listened to the podcast a few times before. Mm -hmm. You know what the final question is. Now, what do you see as the health of terrorism research at the moment? Do you feel that it's, it's stagnant, as Mark Sageman has said, or do you feel that it's... Uh, uh, how, how do you regard it? Uh, I don't see it as stagnant. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I, I have the real luxury every year when Crest was commissioning of reading every single proposal uh, and the quality is just outstanding. And I know people like myself have to say that type of thing, <laughs> or, but it genuinely is. Some of the innovations, some of the questions that are being asked are really 
great. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, so to me, it's not stagnant at all. Um, I am really encouraged by some of the new directions that people are taking things in. So asking what questions in areas which actually have a lot of a practical value. <laughs> so thinking about terrorists in terms of decisions that they make about particular activities rather than asking why questions as yeah. why do they do that. <laughs> that to me is where it's going to unfold and where it's going to be useful. Um, so I don't see it as stagnant at all. Uh, I, I, we've always had the problem of data yeah. um, explored by some of your previous podcasters too um and i think that is the achilles heel yeah that's the thing that people will always struggle with but if you look as uh, a number of people have done recently the kinds of data that are being used now and compare it to the kinds of data that we used 10 years ago there's clearly been progress yeah yeah if you look at bart sherman's piece just re- released yeah. recently yeah. just yeah it, it 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 paints a very different picture to what andrew silk and others were painting 10 15 years ago as yeah, well about yeah. data anyway paul thank you so much for for today's uh, episode it's it's been great if anyone wants to engage with any of the pieces that were discussed today there are links up on the uh talking terror website that's on uel.ac.uk slash t-e-r-c um, and you can click on the links of the research that inspired Paul as well as his own research that we've discussed here today. Be sure to um, to tune back in next week where I'll be talking to Lauren Dawson about his research and I'll chat to you all then. Okay.